As we prepare to read God's holy and errant, infallible word, let us turn again to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And make us hungry for this, your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, we pray. Amen. Scripture reading this evening comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. I'll be reading verses 26 through 29, and then skipping forward, beginning again at verse 36 to verse 46. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink all, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Then Jesus went out with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. After celebrating the Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples made their way to Gethsemane, an olive orchard well known to them. It's been suggested by scholars that this had been a location they had frequented over the course of Jesus' ministry. But on this particular evening, this was not simply a quiet location to relax and enjoy some light-hearted post-supper conversation with friends. Rather, it was here in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus entered into a period of intense sorrow and anguish. 
And we find here Jesus struggling in a way that we have not previously seen in the Gospels. It isn't that Jesus never expressed sorrow. Jesus had wept over Jerusalem before he entered the city just a few days earlier, according to Luke's Gospel. He also wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. But what we find here in this garden is an altogether different sort of grief. As soon as they entered the garden, Jesus took Peter and James and John, the same three disciples who had accompanied him on the Mount of Transfiguration and been given a glimpse of his glory. And Jesus took these same disciples further into the garden with him to pray. And they would now get a very different glimpse of who Jesus was. As Jesus shared with him that his soul was sorrowful even to death. This was a deep anguish he was experiencing. And an agony so acute that he told his closest friends that he felt as though he could die. He expressed to them a grief so consuming that it felt as though life was being crushed right out of him. His heart was breaking with sorrow. And the prayers that he prayed in the midst of this grief were simple and straightforward, but they were also profound and were prayed with such an intensity that Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus began to sweat blood from his brow. But what was the source of this sorrow-causing trouble? Well, certainly at this point, Jesus was well aware of his impending death. He had been foretelling of his crucifixion. Even at the Passover meal, he had just shared with his disciples. In fact, he had redefined this meal by calling his disciples to continue to practice it as a remembrance of the sacrifice he would soon make for his people. And he knew that the, the type of death that he would face would be particularly gruesome. Ten chapters earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus mentioned the cross, telling his disciples that they must be prepared to carry their cross. And they understood exactly what this meant as a reference to this Roman form of execution. Now, there's a reason why our English word that describes something that is intensely painful is excruciating. It's a word which is derived from the word crucify. The Romans had perfected the art of torturing someone to death in a manner that was particularly cruel and humiliating. It was intentionally slow and painful. Jesus knew what awaited him would be excruciating in the physical sense. So was this horror of the physical suffering and death that awaited him now pressing in on him? Was it the looming physical agony that was causing him so much distress here? It was, without a doubt, a terrifying prospect. And it must have been weighing heavily on his mind at that moment. 
But I think what happens in this garden is very revealing. And if we are willing to enter into this darkness with Jesus, then we will come to better understand and appreciate the depth and the nature of his suffering for us. And one of the first things that we notice is that Jesus separated himself from everyone from his disciples as he went deeper into the garden to pray. He had taken a few of his most trusted friends, but even them he left. This is very telling. Jesus recognized that this burden that was before him was one that he must bear alone. And so after instructing his disciples to keep watch, he went further into the garden and then he stopped to pray, laying himself prostrate, face to the ground. He pleaded with his father, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And what was this cup that Jesus asked the father to remove? Well, we find mention of a dreaded cup in scripture. This is the cup of Psalm 11, verse 6. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur in a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. This is the cup of horror and desolation mentioned in Ezekiel 23 verse 33. This is the cup of staggering, the cup of God's wrath mentioned in Isaiah 51 17. And the picture becomes clear here about what Jesus was dreading so much. It wasn't simply the physical agony of the cross. It was also the terrible thought of experiencing the wrath of God, his judgment against sin. This is the cup to which Jesus speaks. This is the cup about which he prays will be removed from him. You see, Jesus knew what he had been called to do. He was to offer himself as an atoning sacrifice, as, in a, as a propitiation for sin. He was called to take our sins on himself and to bear the full penalty of God's wrath against these sins. And as he did this, he would experience the separation from God that is the result of sin. A holy God can have no part with sin. And this was an especially terrifying thought to Jesus who had known no sin. He was sinless. He had lived in perfect obedience to his heavenly father. And this meant that he had known nothing but intimacy with the father. He had enjoyed perfect, unbroken communion with his father, whom he loved, in whose presence there is fullness of joy and peace and life. But now, but now he was becoming sin for the sake of redeeming his people. And not only was he going to have to bear the physical punishment for that sin and his death on the cross, but taking on sin and drinking the cup of God's wrath would mean experiencing a break in this fellowship with his father. A break in the intimacy. The result of sin is death and hell. 
separation from God. And even here in the garden, we are already seeing this playing out. Jesus' prayer expresses the intimacy between himself and his father. Father is the name on his lips as he addresses God, but his pleading is met with silence. Unbearable silence. This was the terrifying prospect of the hours to come. It was this that he was agonizing over in the garden. This is why he dreaded drinking that cup. And if we thought that the suffering of Jesus only begins with his physical abuse, we're mistaken. His suffering was in full swing before ever someone took a swing at him. Already we find him here in deep agony. We find him here trembling before the horror of what he was facing But who wouldn't have been trembling before this fate? If Jesus simply went to the cross with some sort of unemotional, mechanical stoicism, would we truly have a Savior we could relate to? If Jesus displayed some sort of automatic, thoughtless obedience, would we truly have a Savior who we could trust was fully human like us? Of course not. The natural human desire is to avoid suffering, especially of this magnitude. Jesus was looking for a way out here. He was asking his father if there was some other way that his purposes could still be accomplished. He was asking if this really was God's will for him to suffer in this way. And perhaps that makes us uncomfortable to see Jesus so shaken, but we are reminded here that Jesus was fully human. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Even as Jesus, in his humanity, was in agony over the thought of the physical and spiritual consequence of taking our sins upon himself, we need to acknowledge that there was not a moment when Jesus was unwilling to accomplish the task the Father had placed before him. Even as he desired for there to be a way to avoid the cross, even as he made this desire known to his Father, Jesus affirmed through his prayers that it was his intention to follow God's will despite the cost. It was God's will that he was after all along. But praise God. God, that the gospel gives us a glimpse, a powerful glimpse of his humanity here. We can read these verses. We can witness the internal struggle that Jesus experienced. And even if we don't fully understand, we can know that Jesus understands better than anyone what it's like to long and to pray for a dreaded future to be removed. Dearly beloved, Jesus knows what it's like to yearn for an inevitable reality not to come into existence. And we are given permission here to pray that God would remove these sort of things from our lives. But we find him eager to submit himself to his Father's will. He repeatedly prayed for God's will to be done. He knew that the ultimate joy was to be found there, and he trusted that the Father's will is always perfect. 
And nevertheless, in this moment, it was a moment in which he was, in his human nature, susceptible to temptation. And we find here, in one of the clearest instances in all of the gospel, the curtain being drawn back, allowing us to get a glimpse of the battle that was playing out in the unseen realm. We become witnesses to this very serious attack our Lord underwent. There was a very decisive battle being fought in this garden, and it was our salvation that hung in the balance. It was our salvation that was at stake. Jesus faced the forces of darkness here, and the evil one wanted nothing more than for Jesus to take the easy road. And the clear temptation was to turn away from the suffering. The clear temptation was to say, you know what? It isn't my cup to drink. Let the sinners bear responsibility for their own sin. The clear temptation was not to trust in the goodness of God in that moment. Jesus fought a battle of obedience here. But he would not allow personal preference or ambition to conflict with divine demand. What Jesus does here is bend the will of man back into obedience to God. And just as we should reject that Jesus' obedience is some automatic response, we should also reject that Jesus' submission to his Father's will was done with some sort of fatalistic sigh. It wasn't in, oh well, okay, whatever. Observe here that just as ardently as he presented his request to his father to remove this cup, he prayed that his father's will would be done. So what we see here is Jesus prevailing in spirit through prayer. What we see is Jesus bringing himself in his humanity into conformity and confirming in his heart his father's will. Notice how Jesus' prayer changes from his first prayer to his second. In his second prayer, he no longer prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now we find him praying, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, let your will be done. This time his request is stated in the negative. If this cannot pass... And Jesus no longer mentions his will. We see then that Jesus was coming to recognize that drinking this cup was, in fact, God's will for him. No matter how much agony it brought him. As the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered. We are seeing here something of what that means. And please don't miss the significance of where this is all playing out. Jesus is in a garden being tempted to doubt his heavenly father's goodness. He is in a garden hearing that age-old nagging whisper, did God really say? Is this really God's will for you? Does God really intend good for you? 
it's not coincidence that where the first Adam failed in a garden, the second Adam was tempted and prevailed. It becomes apparent here that whereas the first Adam's disobedience in the garden brought ruin upon mankind, so the obedience of the last Adam in this garden was essential for man's salvation. As Charles Spurgeon said, Gethsemane supplies the medicine for the ills which followed upon the forbidden fruit of Eden. Adam's disobedience brought death and misery and disharmony. Jesus' obedience would bring life and joy and peace. And even though Jesus was tempted not to obey, he would prevail. And his resolve was renewed and strengthened through this time of prayer. His final words to his disciples before his arrest were, Rise, let us be going. These are not the words of one who is seeking escape, but of one who is ready now to fight to the finish. Don't let it be lost on us tonight, though, that even as we see Jesus succeed in obedience, we are simultaneously given a picture of our frailty, our weakness through the disciples. As one commentator states, it has been well remarked that just at the time when Jesus was showing the victory of spirit over flesh, the disciples were manifesting the victory of flesh over spirit. Jesus took with him three who had explicitly expressed devotion to him. Peter had just spoken these words to Jesus as they made their way into the garden. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus responded by telling Peter that Peter would, in fact, deny him three times. And Peter countered, even if I must die with you, I would not deny you. But Peter cannot even keep watch as Jesus asked him to do. Jesus here weighed down with agony. And the disciples' eyes weighed down with sleep. Jesus instructs Peter to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Three times Peter failed here in the garden. And it's not coincidence that Peter would give in to temptation three times as he denied Jesus in the coming hours. There's a lesson here of our constant need for prayer in order that we have strength to prevail in our most difficult trials and to resist the fiercest temptations. As one commentator put it, a willing spirit is not enough. It must be supplemented by prevailing prayer. But dearly beloved, Jesus remained faithful to the end. And this serves to encourage us that even as we fail, our Lord does not. He will not forsake us. He went to the cross for our stake. He stood in our place. He took what was ours. Make no mistake, that cup is our cup. We deserve God's just punishment, but Jesus willingly drank it. He entered into the darkness. He entered into the agony for us and for our salvation. He drank this bitter cup. 
He drank it down to the last dregs. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath dry in order that those who belong to him will never have to taste a drop of it. Jesus drank all of this cup in order that we might drink of another cup, the cup of salvation, the cup to which Jesus pointed when he instituted the Lord's Supper. Jesus is saying here in the, fa- in the garden, yes, Father, I will drink this cup. I will willingly drink this cup by your command. And I will drink all of it. And Jesus was willing to drink it despite the shame, despite the pain, despite the abandonment. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath in order that the cup of salvation might be for you and me full and overflowing. And so in this dark hour of Jesus's life, in this moment of deep agony, do you sense, dearly beloved, do you sense the love that God has for you? Why was it that Jesus' plea to his father that this cup might pass from him, why was it that it was met with silence? Because God so loved the world. There was no other way. Only one who was like us in every way could serve as our substitute. Only an unblemished sacrifice could be offered to atone for our sin. God willed to offer up his son. God willed to take our punishment upon himself in order that our sins would be washed clean, in order that we might be redeemed. Jesus faced the total abandonment and absolute wrath from his father on the cross because of God's love for us. And as we think about God's great love, consider this. Scripture tells us that Christ died for us while we were yet enemies. Jesus drank of that bitter cup, not for those who loved him, not for those who appreciated what he was doing, who were thankful for his sacrifice. Jesus drank that cup for those who had lived in defiance of him, who had hated him, who had opposed him. He was drinking that cup for those people. He was drinking it for the disciples who abandoned him and denied him, who even in Gethsemane lacked devotion for him. He was drinking it for the Roman soldiers who would beat and crucify him. He was drinking it for those who would stand at the foot of his cross and mock and heckle him. Think about this. Just a few days after his crucifixion, on the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter would stand up and preach where? In Jerusalem, the city where Jesus had been brutally murdered. And he called for those who had crucified the Lord Jesus to repent of their sin and to place their faith in him. And the book of Acts tells us that thousands did. These had been the same people who had insisted upon his death days earlier. They were his enemies. He died for them. 
In other words, he was drinking that cup for you and for me. Let that reality sit with you this evening. Join Jesus in the garden. Linger there. Watch and pray. And my prayer is that our Lord's sufferings would move you to love and obedience. That the kindness of our Lord would move you to lay down your lives before him and to follow him in faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that Jesus Christ willingly drank the cup of your wrath for us. We thank you for his saving death. We thank you that in him we are delivered from the power of sin and death. We thank you that he offers up himself as heavenly food for us, that we might be strengthened for eternal life even now. And grant that we might, feeding on Christ by faith, be fit for heaven and made holy as you are holy. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen.